saying that you hold us, you keep us. Lord, you deliver those who fear and trust in you. And God, my prayer is this morning as we spend time in your word, God, that in the same way you powerfully used your word to create the world we now live in, God, as your people, we recognize the power of your word that is about to be preached to change our lives, to bring us peace and blessing, and that we would respond as creation did. We would respond with obedience and submission. That what you say in your word, God, the story would be written of our life that we would say it was so. We obeyed and we submitted. Pray your help this morning as I preach. I cannot do this in my own strength or power. Lord, I pray your spirit would take your word and do something with it that I cannot. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Once you turn to Genesis 1, we are beginning a new study through the book of Genesis that I've titled Origins. And I think you'll be really enriched and blessed by the study. I hope that at least. And um, I found myself so often in preaching, referring back to Genesis, because really Genesis is where the story of the Bible begins. And so much of what all the Bible is trying to show us, those ideas begin in Genesis. And so we need to come to an understanding of what God was saying at the beginning to help us understand what he's doing even now. And so this morning, we're gonna be in chapter number one together in a message I've titled, God of Beginnings. I've been at uh, two weddings in the last two weeks, which means that I found myself often at a loss for words as I'm trying to introduce someone I know really well, often my wife or my kids, to somebody who may not know them very well. And you know, I don't know if you've ever felt this way when you're introducing somebody to someone else, but how do you, in just a sentence or two, explain to somebody the personality and the depth that is in somebody you know so well? How do you sum up the personality of your husband or your wife to somebody who doesn't know them and try to get them to appreciate in just a few words what you appreciate about somebody? It can be really difficult. I, when we have guest speakers come and preach for us you know, a couple times a year, that's actually one of the things I, I really have a hard time with is getting up here. I feel like the need to introduce to you this person who maybe you don't know who uh, is a longtime faithful missionary or a mentor or a friend of mine and try and tell you, church family, in just a couple sentences why you should appreciate them and hear what they have to say from God's word in the same way that I would want to. It's really difficult to introduce somebody that you know so well to someone who doesn't know them. But as difficult as it is to introduce a friend, a mentor, a spouse, 
If you had just a few sentences, how would you introduce somebody to God? If you had just a few sentences to give somebody their first introduction to God, what would you say? Well, in our sermon today, I have the very difficult task of introducing you to God. That's what I want to do this morning. Because after all, Genesis 1 is Moses in a sense saying, and now I would like to introduce to you God. This text is really difficult. I hope you'll sympathize with me a little bit. Feel sorry, say ah, or something like that, and show me that you feel really bad for me. Because this is a really difficult passage in Genesis 1. Because really, this passage is an introduction of an introduction of an introduction of an introduction. You think I'm making that up, but think about the Bible. You have 66 books of the Bible, and really, in a sense, your Old Testament is an introduction to this person, God's son, who appears on the scene in Matthew, the New Testament, Jesus. So the, introduction, the Old Testament is an introduction to the New Testament. The law, the first couple books of the Old Testament are an introduction to the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy, they're called the law or the Torah. They're an introduction to the Old Testament. The book of Genesis is an introduction to the law. So as Moses is meeting with God, there in the tent of meeting in the wilderness, God gives him I think pretty much around the same time, all these first few books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he writes Genesis as an introduction to all the stuff that's gonna happen in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Genesis 1 through 11 is really what most people would call the introduction to the book of Genesis, which is an introduction to the law which is an introduction to the Old Testament, which is an introduction to the New Testament. And Genesis chapter number one is the introduction of an introduction of an introduction of an introduction of an introduction. Moses, in Genesis one, to God's people who just escaped slavery, in effect, in Genesis one says this, I would like to introduce you to God. Now, before we get into the text this morning, I think we all need to come to an understanding that if I'm tasked this morning with preaching the introduction to God, this passage is going to have a lot of good stuff in it that I don't have enough time to get to unless you want to take a church vote to extend the preaching time by 10 or 20 minutes. I'm going to guess you don't want to vote yes on that. So let's just come to an agreement that you may have some questions about Genesis 1, about some of the fine details of this passage that I will not answer because I just don't have enough time. And we're gonna preach through Genesis 1 the way that Moses wrote it, focusing on God, because really Genesis 1, though a lot of people make it out to be about the when of creation or the how of creation, Though Genesis 1 talks about those things, Genesis 1 is a lot more not about the when or the how, but about the who. 
Moses is saying something about God. And so it might surprise you that I'm gonna talk a lot about God and not about a lot of the details of what is a day, is it 24 hours or is it not? If you have questions about that, I would love to either take you out to lunch or have a phone call, or if enough people ask me, I'll do a part two and answer all the fun, interesting questions you have. But this morning, can we agree that there's going to be some ground we'll cover and a lot of cookies that have to stay on the shelf because we just don't have time? Are we all in consensus about that? Okay. Unless someone wants to call for a church vote for a longer sermon, that's where I'll leave it. Now, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to read chapter one together. And it's, it's several verses, but I want you to engage your mind as we read. Because when we march through the sermon, here's how I'm going to preach it. I think that this passage gives us three truths about our creator God. And I want you, as we read, to just train your brain to look for the stuff that gets repeated. Okay? Moses is very intentional in how he writes this. He's focusing on the repetition, and you should as well. Let's begin in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters was called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years." And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of the heaven. 
and God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth in the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And we'll skim the sixth day and cover it more in detail next week. But here's the sixth day in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And drop down to verse number 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Like I said before, I want to highlight what I think are the three main themes of this account. And here's the first one that I think is so abundantly clear. Moses is trying to show us that God is sovereign and all of creation is subject to him. This passage is pretty obvious. We could get into the details of it, but it's not hard to understand that what this passage is trying to show us this morning, that all of life, all of matter, and even time itself finds its beginnings and its origins in God. Verse number one says, in the beginning, God. It shows us that God existed outside of time and space. And just think about it logically. Who is a God that is confined by time? If we believe in an all-powerful God, he must be sovereign over time. He must exist before time itself. And in very short order, really, just it's almost as if it's effortless, Moses shows us that God created all of the things that his original audience would have been tempted to worship. Now, you got to understand this. Moses is not just writing in a vacuum. He's writing to living, breathing people that have their own circumstances. And what he's writing to is a group of slaves that came out of Egyptian slavery and had been immersed in the culture of Egypt for 400 years. I don't know if you studied much about Egypt lately, but they've got a lot, a lot of gods. A whole lot. They worship everything. And it's not by accident that some of the most famous gods in Egypt, the things that they worshiped in Egypt, are called out in Genesis 1 and explicitly said to be made and commanded and ruled over by God, the God they worshiped. Verse number nine talks about how God was sovereign and powerful over the waters. He shaped them. He formed them into the rivers and the seas. And if you study ancient Egypt, you know that they worshiped the Nile River. Verse number 10 shows that God made the earth itself 
which is worshiped by so many different pagan cultures. Verse number 11 shows that God made the plants, which are often shaped into idols by idol-worshiping cultures. And then God really goes after the ancient gods of Egypt because if you study Egypt, the, the, the head god, the numero uno god they worshiped was the sun god Ra. I love the fourth day of creation because if you understand that context, it almost is comical how puny and powerless the sun is in comparison to God. Because on the fourth day, Moses shows that God not only made the sun, verse number 17 says he hung the sun, he set it in its place. Verse number 18 says that all of the sun's authority over earth came from God. Look at verse number 18. He gave it rule over the day and over the night. God was the one who determined that the sun would order our seasons and our weather. God was the one in charge. And then on the fifth day, God goes after more of their pagan gods and says that God created all of animal life, which if you've ever seen a statue or an image, you know that it's often shaped after an animal. And so God is saying, hey, listen, all the stuff that you saw people worshiping, and you may even be tempted to worship yourself, was made by me. Everything in this world is dependent on me. Think about this. When it comes to ancient pagan cultures, they worshiped what they depended on to live. Now, you and I, we don't see the sun or the moon or the plants as our source of life. We see dollar bills, we see jobs, we see people. And so we're tempted to worship those type of things. But in their day, they worshiped what they were dependent on. And Moses and, and God are trying to get us to see that beneath all, or above all of that is a God who is in charge of all of his creation, far from being absent and disinterested God is present and ruling and in control. And I think this morning as we read Genesis 1, we have to recognize that because God is our creator, he has authority over his creation. This morning, recognize that God has authority over your life. When Moses says, let me introduce you to God, he makes it very clear that God is the one who's in charge. Now think about this. Moses could have started his book of law anyway, right? He could have just jumped right into the rules and the regulations. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with the laws. He starts with a statement about the authority of the lawgiver. Why? Because really, our obedience to the laws of God have much more to do with how we view God than necessarily how we view his laws. And if we recognize that it's not just Genesis 1 saying, well, in a moment in time, God ruled over creation, and in a particular moment in time, God was in charge. No, it's stating something about God evermore, that he is always in charge. Then we look at his word, and we recognize the very word we listened to this morning is given to us by the same person, the same God who formed us and made us. When creation, or sorry, when all of scripture reflects on creation, it always goes back to the idea of God's authority. 
Revelation 4.11 is a great expression of this. It'll be on the screen. As, as all of God's creations reflecting on God's creative acts, they, they respond this way. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he had created all things. And because God had created all things, that shows design, that shows purpose, that you and I were not created by accident. We were created for the pleasure and the glory of our God. Perhaps this morning you are tempted to think something like this. Well, pastor, I know you're very sincere and you believe in God, but I don't believe in him. Well, you know, some days I don't believe in government either. But my belief in an authority does not change its power and its authority over me. That I could not believe in the authority of the government, but I can go 65 miles an hour down Kansas Avenue and I'll find out real quickly who's the real authority on this earth. It ain't Mike. It is the city of Garden City on Kansas Avenue. And I think the same is true with God. You might be able to live in a way that says, I don't believe in God's authority, but the day will come when we all come to a recognition of the very same truth our mamas reminded us of. If I brought you into this world, what'd she say? I can take you out of it. It's funny, with our mothers and our fathers, we recognize that their creation of us gives them authority, but so often we want to dethrone God and say, he's not our creator, he's not our authority. Christians, when you read Genesis 1, you and I need to reorient ourselves to the fact that we are not in charge. You are not king and you are no queen. You are under the authority of the king, the one who made you and who made this earth. And as the apostle Paul said, we live and move and have our being in him. But the creation account is so much more beautiful than that. It's more than just generically stating God has all power. Because the creation account also shows us a picture of God's goodness. That when God touches something, it's beautiful. Now we all probably, if we grew up in church, we memorized Genesis 1-1, right? You probably didn't even look at the page when I read it. You knew it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But most of us ignore Verse number two. And actually, I think verse one and two are kind of a topic sentence of the whole paragraph. But verse number two actually unfolds the very structure and the very idea that Moses is trying to get across. Notice the words in verse number two. I really want you to look at your Bible to study with me because you may not have noticed this before. That verse number two is trying to tell us what was this universe, this abyss before God created stuff. And I'll be honest with you, Moses' words are so poetic and I don't fully, I can't describe to you biologically what he's trying to tell us, but it's clear enough that we get the idea of what he's trying to say. Look at verse number two. Notice how he points out two different characteristics about the earth. Remember, this is the earth that God made. And it says, prior to God's six days of creation, the earth was what? Without form. And what's the next word? Void. So, so he's saying that before God's creation, the earth has no structure, no form, no shape. And before God's creation, the earth has no life. It's empty. It's void. 
It's an abyss. It's no structure, no shape, and no life. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this in the next few moments, that the second thing that the creation account tells us about God is that God takes darkness and chaos and he transforms it into light and life. So here's this earth, it has no shape and it has no life. It has no structure and it's empty. And then it says that darkness, look at verse number two, darkness was upon the face of the deep. I don't know a whole lot of what Moses is trying to say there specifically, what that looked like, but I do know this, that when Moses is talking about the darkness, he's trying to contrast it with what happened later on in the account, that it used to be darkness, but now not only is there this generic light that's created on the first day, he fills that light with more lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's this transformation. But I love the end of verse number two. Because sometimes we think God is absent in the darkness. We think God's disinterested in our darkness. We think God is void. He's not there in the darkness. But verse number two shows us that from the beginning of time, God was present even in the darkness. Look at verse two. The Spirit was hovering or moving upon the face of the waters. At the end of verse number two, we see a picture that something is about to change because when God is in darkness, it doesn't stay dark very long. And I want you to see how the account of creation really is structured around verse number two. So what is the earth in verse number two? It's without what? Form. In days one through three, I want you to notice this, God is very interested in forming. There's, there's really no living creatures created till the very end of day three. Days one through three are about God bringing structure to a structureless earth. He forms it, right? He divides structure, light from darkness. He forms the waters in day number two. He's separating, he's forming them. Day number three, God is adding more structure and form by forming the earth, the land, okay? So it was without form, but by the end of day number three, it has form. And then verses four through six is God filling the emptiness of the earth. So it was void, but in day number four, God fills the skies with the celestial bodies. Day number, sorry, that was day number four. Day number five, God fills the sky with birds and he fills the sea with sea creatures. And day number six, God fills the earth with the land's creatures and his most prized creation, mankind. Do you see how this account, friend, it's not a scientific defense. Moses isn't defending nothing. He's just saying it. He's just saying, this is the facts. Take it or leave it. But he's not, he's not really interested as much in whether these are literal 24-hour days. We could have lunch. I could talk to you about that. I tend to think they are, but I think there's room to think that they're not. But what he is saying is he says, the story of creation is a story of how God takes darkness and chaos 
And by his amazing work, he transforms it into something that is completely different. He fills the earth with life and he shapes it into this beautiful, structured ecosystem. The story of creation is the story of God creating what is out of what isn't. Friend, when God started his creation, it's not as though he had a blank canvas. No, Moses is telling us God created with no canvas and no brushes and no paint. And when he had nothing, he created something that is so unbelievably majestic. That's why throughout the account, What is the resounding reflection on God's creation? It was good. It was good. It was good. And at the end, he looks at all of his creation. He says, it is very good. But before God entered the picture, verse number two, it wasn't good. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The earth was without form and void. But the only thing that changed was God's creative act. Now remember, Genesis 1 is an introduction of an introduction of an introduction of what? An introduction, right? So this, this, this is not disconnected from the rest of Genesis. And actually, the whole story of Genesis is going to pick up on this theme and show us that God takes what is not good and he makes it good. God takes what is a mess and he makes something majestic. God takes what is ugly and he turns it into beauty. Genesis 12 tells us how God takes a pagan man in a foreign land and he makes him the father of many nations. And the very end of Genesis picks up on this. In one of the last verses in the book of Genesis, you can look at Genesis 50 verse 20 and see this. It shows how God takes the most messed up, chaotic situation and turns it into something good. Does this not remind us of God's words on his creation when Joseph says to his brothers who tried to kill him? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto what? Good. To bring to pass it as it is this day to save much people alive. Listen, the story of creation is God taking what is darkness and chaos and transforming it into light and life. But Christian, that is more than the story of creation. That is the story of Jesus Christ himself. Because as Paul is reading back on the Old Testament and thinking about this darkness to light scenario of Genesis 1, he reflects on that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he shows us that what we as Christians are supposed to see in Genesis 1 is a picture of the new creation in Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the glory of, or sorry, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Creation is a story of light from darkness, but that is also the story of the new creation. When we look back and we see this 
really poetic expression of darkness and without form and void, and now it's turned into the most beautiful thing we could possibly imagine. Can you imagine what the earth looked like back then? It's already good. When we look at that transformation, Paul says, you see an early shadow of what God can do through Jesus Christ in the darkness of a lost soul. Christians, when we read Genesis 1, we see an indicator of how radically God can change a darkened heart through the light of his son, Jesus Christ. God's act of bringing light from darkness is not just a one-time event. He is changing darkness into light every day a person receives the new creation of Christian salvation. God, through Jesus Christ, wants to take the darkness of your sin, the chaos of your life, the structurelessness of your days, and he wants to recreate it through Jesus Christ into something that is so beautiful, it declares the glory of God. And man, if you've been a Christian long enough, you have seen how Jesus does this over and over over again. He takes messy people, disordered people, disobedient people, and he forms them into a shape that glorifies God. He takes empty churches and he fills them with new life. He takes empty souls and he fills them with purpose. That is our God. That's what he does through his son, Jesus. Christian, can you look up here just a second? Do you find yourself looking at a corner of your life that just seems so dark? Hopeless? Chaotic? Messy? Can I remind you that if God can take the empty abyss of this universe and form it into something that majestically declares the glory of God, I think Jesus can handle your darkness. I think he can handle that other person's darkness if they would just allow him into their life. Jesus can change anything. You've seen him do it in so many different people's stories. And when we look at the creation account, we ask ourselves this, if God can do that for a formless universe, what else can he do? But the question has to come to our minds then, okay, Pastor Mike, that's great. I'm glad Jesus transformed stuff radically. I would really like to know how that is gonna happen in my life. How do you expect God to take my mess and turn it into something that is majestic? Well, actually, the creation account tells us how God does that. Because hopefully as you're reading, one of the things that you saw repeated over and over and over again is that the means by which God brought this creation was through the power of his life-giving word. And that's the third truth this morning. How does God bring radical transformation? He brings it through the power of his life-giving word. Over and over and over again, our passage this morning is punctuated and pierced with three simple words. Look at verse number three, and God said. Look at verse number um, six, 
and God said. Verse number nine, and God said. Verse number 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. And then it says it again, verse number 20, and God said. Verse number 24, and God said. Verse number 26, can you guess? And God said. What is Moses saying? He's saying that it was the words of God that created light itself. It's the words of God that formed the biggest mountains and the deepest seas. It was God's words that in an instant formed every celestial body as we know it, the depths to which mankind has not even discovered. And it was God's word that spoke the creation of his animals and people into existence. And I love, you got to hear the echo of creation in this account too, because it's not just, and God said, and nothing happens, like sometimes how I feel preaching from a pulpit. There's an echo in all of the accounts. It's, and God said, and creation has their own echo back to God. Because I want you to see, it says, and God said, verse number three, and there was. Verse number six, and God said. And then it says at the end of verse number seven, and it was so. Verse number nine, and it was so. Verse number 11, and it was so. You wanna know how God brings transformation? When you in your life, when God speaks, if you'll let it be so. That's why I get up here every single Sunday or whoever else happens to preach and will spend 40 minutes proclaiming the word of God because here's what I believe. If you will listen and submit and obey, something will change. You know, a lot of us will complain about the darkness and chaos, but we won't submit to God's life-giving word. We'll complain about the chaos of our finances, but we won't submit to God's words about our finances. We'll get frustrated at the chaos of our children or our society, and we wonder why. Well, it's because there's not submission to the words of God. It's no surprise to us that Moses introduces the book of the law with a profound statement about the power of God's words. But the apostle John wanted us to see something even more. He wanted us to see that when we look at the words and God said, we should see an early picture of Jesus. Look at John 1, it'll be on the screen. He interprets this. He literally is quoting Genesis 1, look. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and that light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Look at verse 14, and the word was made flesh. Now we realize he's not talking about words. He's talking about a person. And that word dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then look at verse 17 through 18. The law was given by Moses... But grace and truth came by who? Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus was the word of God declaring who God was. 
How does God bring radical transformation, you ask? God brings it through the life-giving power of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he changes people. Friend, if you want God to change yourself, invite Jesus into your life more. Submit to his words more. Say, and it was so, more. If you want God to change the darkness of your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister, get them in the church where they'll hear hear the word of God, where they'll hear about Jesus and he will do something that you and I can't do. Social programs can't do it. Counselors can't do it. Only the living word of God, Jesus Christ, can do it. He is the one who takes our mess and our chaos and our disorder and he changes it radically. In that same chapter, John summarizes the decision you all face this morning. In verse number 11, whether or not you will receive Jesus into your life. And sadly, there were many who saw the light, but received him not. It says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But, but, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We can reject Jesus and remain in darkness, or we can receive him and become radically transformed into the sons of God. But listen, friend, God did not stop speaking when Jesus went back to heaven. He's given us the word of Christ. He's given us the very scriptures that Jesus quoted. And that's why every time the word of God is open, you, my friend, have an opportunity to make this decision once and again. Will you receive him? Or will you not? And that decision is the hinge that will determine whether your darkness is transformed into light or it remains the empty abyss described in verse number two. How does God transform? He transforms by the power of his word. You wanna see more transformation? Get some more word in your life. We got some more coming at you at 6 p.m. tonight. Come and join us. We got some more this morning at 10 o'clock. Come and join us. Why? Because it's the word. Jesus Christ and his spoken words we have recorded here that will change our life fundamentally. And can I just give this extra thought? It has nothing to do with any of my three points, but it's in the text. For some strange reason, God did in six days what he could have done in a moment. By the way, most Christians today debate about how long this creation took place. Did it take place in thousands of years or six days? But early Christianity, their debate was the total opposite. They were like, they were frustrated that God took six days to do it. Friend, God didn't take six days because he needed a break. But don't we see something here that should help us a little bit? Because God intentionally took longer to bring the transformation he saw from the very beginning than you and I would have ever pictured. And yet, 
Though God decided to do creation in six days, we think God should rush and resolve our problems and answer our prayers at the earliest moment. But we see in these verses a God who's very methodical, not just about what he does, but the timing in which he does it. God brings radical transformation. That much is clear. But it may not always happen as quickly as you and I might assume. And so hang in there and submit to the word and trust the process. What does God's creation tell us? It shows us the power of God's word and the power of his son, Jesus. And it reveals to us the reality of his authority. And when you and I recognize his power and his authority, and when we submit to it, God has a way of taking chaos and turning it into a beautiful creation. Every head bowed and every eye closed.